Welcome back to the Don't Worry About It podcast, where we talk all things mental health related, from anxiety to depression, from happiness to sadness, and all emotions and feelings in between. My name is David Izzo, and I started this podcast to help facilitate conversations related to mental health topics. On this week's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Shlomo Franklin. Shlomo's story is one of a man who stuck between two worlds and never felt comfortable in either of them someone who paved his own path and is still growing and on that journey today. It's a story of struggle, a story of pain, a story of happiness, and a story of all emotions in between. I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with Shlomo as much as I did. Thanks so much for listening. Shlomo Franklin, welcome to the Don't Worry About It podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, I'm really excited that we were able to connect and uh, to set up a time for us to chat tonight. Um, before we get into the conversation, I just want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Cool. Um, I'm Shlomo. I, I write songs, and uh, normally I run around and play play gigs, uh, either alone or with my band. Um, but now I just uh, stay at home and write songs at home and play gigs in the woods with no one there. Um, so COVID has clearly impacted you in a lot of different ways as a musician, clearly. Yes, mostly me, and then the impact on the rest of the world is minimal, to my experience. Right, right. No, well, it's important to to understand how, you know, COVID's impacted so many of us in so many different ways. Um, the world's changed, but I always think it's interesting to hear on the personal level how it's impacted you, and as somebody who's used to going out and playing music, playing crowds, playing for people. What has that adjustment been like for you? Yeah, it's definitely been strange. There's been moments that have been difficult. There have been moments where I'm like, hey, this is kind of a good thing. But then you end up feeling a little bit guilty and weird because you're like, there's people dying. This is a great tragedy and and this is terrible. How can I uh, almost feel like I'm benefiting or grown from the situation? But obviously you can't live that way and you just have to live your own life and you can't take on other people's um, tragedy and life is complex that way. But like overall, if I were to ask myself, like, has this um, detour or break been a good thing? Like, absolutely. Like I've been able to um, reassess a lot of parts of my life and um, reinforce certain other things, uh, decide what's important and, um, it's definitely been extremely difficult, but like, I think overall, um, like, yeah, I'm a little bit grateful for the, for like the, Hey, Hey, like, let's stop everything. Rethink everything. Um, you know, it, right. COVID in a lot of ways has forced a lot of people to change or to stop at least for a second and, and start thinking. I always remember when COVID first started and I got locked down, I was locked down. Uh, with family and you know it was the most time I'd spent with family like just locked in we weren't like allowed to see other people and you kind of start to reevaluate where you are in life what you what you want what's actually important to you I I think from hearing from you it seems like you were able to adjust or at least take time to readjust what you were doing what you wanted to do and I'm sure that during this time, like for everybody, you've experienced emotions ranging from the highest of highs to lowest of lows. What has that journey been like for you? Yeah, I think that's dead on. Uh, exactly. Um, it, it's been 
you know, there's so many different parts. Like there's this surreal, like eerie quiet in the beginning and it felt very serious and very scary. I didn't know if uh, certain family members of mine were going to make it, you know, um, and slowly that fog lifted into the summer. And I think the summer was this ray of sunlight coming in where numbers were way down and it felt like, you know, we'd almost seen the other side and things were looking really good. And we were all sort of starving for, for friendship and, and good times. So like I ended up like going hiking with tons of friends over the summer and spent a lot of time in the outdoors. And um, I bought a kayak and like got really into fishing um, which is something that I haven't done since I was a little kid, um, but have been wanting to, but I've just been consumed with other things in life. So before getting into, I, I do want to eventually turn back the clock and get, you get a better understanding of, of who you are, but you said something that really stuck out to me. You called it a fog and then you said a ray of sun, a sun broke through it. What did you mean by that? Well, every, every um, tragedy is, uh, you know, it's a dark cloud. Um, and that's the only reason why people can move on from difficult things. Um, because, you, you know, when you ask yourself, when you when you ponder the amount of human suffering, and then you consider how people have been able to overcome and triumph over said suffering, it, it is mind blowing. It's like, when I was a kid, um, on the farm, we had a milk hand who came on a raft from Cuba and like his whole uh, ranch back in Cuba was stolen, you know, taken um, by the government, by Castro and parts of his family were killed. And he came up, came here in a raft and found refuge. And he was like the happiest guy I knew. And as a kid, it's like I kind of understood his story as being like how like like it was confusing to me i'm like how is he so happy when he's uh confronted such difficulty um and i was also like just surrounded by you know i I knew some holocaust survivors and um my both my grandfathers fought in world war ii um so when you just consider what human beings are confronted with and the fact that they can overcome those things you you sort of you have to uh, surmise that that pain and tragedy and difficulty is to an extent a fog and a fog always lifts and that's how people are able to move on well, it's really interesting you know you said have to I think the I think the change of word there is and and for me it's always you kind of need to if you want to move on right tragedy does strike every day something bad in the world happens to somebody somebody yeah. every day is having the worst day of their lives they're more than one most likely and on the same days people are having the best day in your life you can have the greatest day of your life at the same time that somebody you know is maybe having their worst and i think the example that you just gave about you know getting that perspective and i think it's an incredible perspective to understand it and at least to get ex- uh, exposure to at such a young age is that people who have gone through turmoil and suffering and growth but through hardship when you can come out of it on the other side, you gain at least perspective, right? That guy looks at life every day that going through what he went through, knowing what his life could have been like, and just having probably waking up every day without that pressure of wondering if he's going to live or die is probably a way he can wake up in the morning and smile. Yeah, it's mind blowing. And 
uh, it's inspiring and humbling and frankly confusing. <laughs> it's like pretty amazing. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you grew uh, you when you were growing up on a farm. Can you explain to me like what your childhood was like? Where where did you grow up? Uh, I had a very strange childhood, uh, sort of like a, a, I led a double life. Um, my dad was a, a hippie and became a mountain man, lived in the middle of nowhere, Montana, um, out there in the wilderness, you know, built a log cabin, became a wildlife biologist and just wanted to like live amongst nature. Um, he sort of flirted with some native cultures and learned, learned their languages and spent some time there, but uh ultimately found his way back to new york where he was born and became like an ultra orthodox jew um but sort of never left his mountain man lifestyle behind so he uh when he met my mom they bought a farm upstate and they were basically like we're gonna we're gonna raise like an ultra orthodox family on a farm um excuse me and like uh, there aren't too many ultra orthodox farmers, um, and it was kind of like an impossible thing to do, and ultimately, in a way, a failed experiment. Um, so I was I was raised like going back and forth between a very very Hasidic community and then like a rural upstate New York like American uh, life. Um, so sort of bounced back and forth in my childhood between those two. Wow. I mean, the picture I'm getting is just, I'm thinking of, I mean, you never hear of Hasidic mountain, you know, outdoor people, you know, it's just not like the remix you ever hear of. I think it's just the picture that comes to mind is like, if Jews were Amish in a way, yeah, yeah. That's kind of, that must've been incredibly tough to grow up in that kind of environment. Yeah. There, there's a Bob Dylan lyric uh, that goes something along the lines of, um, I was always on the outside of whatever, whatever side there was. Um, and that's certainly how I felt growing up. Cause like upstate, I was um, just like a Hasidic kid from the city and in the city, I was a farmer. <laughs> so wherever I was, I sort of felt like the outsider. Yeah. I can't imagine you can relate when you go to, when you're living that dual life, right? That, I think that lyric is incredibly powerful and really sums up your experience you can't relate with anybody around you because there's nobody else like you i mean correct me if i'm wrong how many hasidic outdoor people were living in the mountains other than your family yeah none <laughs> none so how did you, how did that affect you growing up how were you able to how were you able to relate to kids were you exposed did you get what happened when you got exposure to outside of your own two dual cultures well as a little kid you tend to try to be ashamed of your differences and you try to hide them um and then part of maturing and growing up is first first you realize you can't hide them uh and then after that you realize that maybe you shouldn't or you you know it actually serves you to be yourself um i mean part of me really enjoyed being the kid who like rode horses and like you know milked cows and and um had had sheep and and whatnot i enjoyed being that like in like a in the Hasidic environment, it helped me be an individual, but certainly at times, I mean, like I, 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 if I ever got in trouble, like my biggest fear was like my old man would show up smelling like cow, uh, poop, I guess, um, you know, it, driving up in his pickup truck into like, you know, and everyone would look and cause he just kind of like, you know, he wouldn't have time to change his clothes. So he'd just be like wearing a flannel and, 
again covered in cow cow stuff so that, that was like my biggest fear as a kid and now like that image um i feel such pride like i'm so proud of my dad that he sort of was such an individual and unafraid to be himself in, in a community was not interested in complying you know so in that respect i mean he's a very flawed human being but he he's my hero in that regard and and I sort of love that image now, but as a kid, I was definitely uh, pretty ashamed of that or afraid. Most kids can relate to you feeling like, I don't want my dad to get called into school because I'm going to get in trouble. You were afraid of the shame or the, because uh, he didn't fit into the model of the Hasidic community because he wore flannel and, and worked in the, and worked in the farmland. Yeah. I mean, it is very hard to, uh, to, to shower off like, 20 years of 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 cow poop so yeah i mean the idea of him walking coming through the halls um wearing like lager boots um you know he definitely did not look like the very very run-of-the-mill parents that that showed up you know um yeah did he uh did he come up with his own line of black and white flannel yeah (laughs) no he kind of you know he he himself, in a way, li- lived lived a double life where, you know, when he was at work upstate, he kind of just looks like a redneck and, and, you know, and has got all his farmer friends. And growing up, I knew them and really loved them. I loved all the I loved visiting all the neighboring farms. It was like one of my favorite activities as a kid it was just like, you know, getting his pickup truck and we go over to like another farm to like buy a cow or or see how someone's mom was doing. Like, it's a really nice, close knit community. Um, and then that weekend we'd be like in shul and he'd be like wearing the full Hasidic garb, like a long black coat and a black hat, um, you know, and then he probably would have showered and showered off the cow poop, um, you know, and, and we'd be in that world. So it was certainly fun jumping from universe to universe, um, but came along with a lot of like confusion and questions. But I mean, ultimately, of course, I'm profoundly grateful that I, have that perspective and um you, you know yeah i'm i'm deeply grateful for that life but as a kid it was very very strange and very confusing and and at times really difficult yeah i was going to i was going to ask if you're willing to 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 go to go there must have been times where you must have really struggled with your own identity and understanding your own self when you're living a dual life and and trying to relate how how were you able to like relate with kids in the Hasidic community after not as a kid, like you don't fully get it until you're an adult, but looking back, I wonder how you were, well, how were you able to relate with those kids and, and at the farm and then also go back uh, on the weekdays and, and, and fall, fall in line with the Hasidic community and, and the strict regulations and setup that they have. Yeah. I tried really hard to just hide my differences and, and that led to like, definitely I was trying to like, I would try on different identities um, and I would, you know, sample different things. And when I was really little, I would like lie. It, it was like the funniest lies. And, and thankfully that it stopped somewhere around like sixth or seventh grade, but I would lie a lot just like to create a different identity. So I'd be like, um, I'm actually like, I'm an EMT member. <laughs> I was like uh, eight years old, like telling my friends um, I actually at night after school, like, I like work for the ambulance corps. Um, and then I started telling people I'm a, I'm a piano player and actually fly around the world on a big jet uh, playing concerts. Uh, and then I became a drummer. Um, 
And then somewhere around sixth or seventh grade, um, for some reason, and I'm profoundly grateful, but like, I, I guess I re- realized how stupid lying was. And um, yeah, but like, I definitely used uh, lying or to try to like change my identity and alternate my reality because like my real identity and actual reality was very, very difficult to understand or maneuver because there was no blueprint, there was no instructions. And, and uh, yeah, I felt like, I felt deeply ashamed for being different. And um, yeah. I'm growing up feeling ashamed to the point where you make up and I'm obviously, you know, when you're making up the lies that they're, you don't realize it in in a sense, but in a sense, you kind of understand that they're also like ridiculous. Like, you know, when you're telling them that you're flying around the world on a jet playing piano, that it's not true. (laughs) And like, but, but you still feel the need to do it as, and I, and I completely understand to why you'd want to do it. It's hard to actually relate. Cause I, I don't think most people, I don't know of anybody who's ever grown up in, in, in the way you have. And now that you're looking back on it, what kind of perspective or things do you like look back on and take away from, from growing up that way? Like, how did it, when you grew up, when you grew up, I guess, eventually when you finally got out, of the system i definitely want to talk about that what did you learn and, and how did that affect you yeah um well i'm definitely still growing up but um it, it, i realized that a lot of the emotions and sentiments that i was experiencing were not unique to me so like although on paper maybe someone uh couldn't relate to me or i couldn't relate to them i realized that the things that we were feeling feelings of not fitting in or feelings of alienation or, or um, fear of people not like uh, appreciating you or thinking that you're like interesting or all these uh, uh, feelings are just very, very human and very, very uh, to an extent normal. So I stopped feeling so unique and I was just like, uh, you know, the everything that I'm experiencing, some like other people are, are experiencing. And even if like, they didn't grow up in this like very specific um, predicament. Um, so that was definitely like a relief and it helped me uh, relate to other people and be more empathetic and be like, Hey, like maybe uh, your dad isn't some weird mountain man, farmer turned Hasidic Jew, but like I could, you could still relate to like, um, you know, not really fitting in and feeling like an outsider or um, not being quite sure of who you are or what you're supposed to do and what life is about. So, you know, I think that especially in today's culture, we have all these like identity politics and part of it is, you know, there's good, um, but part of it uh, removes the individual. And it's like, you know, you can, um, you can have a very, very similar experience to someone who lived a wildly different life. So someone could have grown up in extreme poverty in a very very specific scenario and you could have grown up with like just tons of money rolling in dough um there's still a lot that you can relate on and the differences might be like stark you know you could like you could make like a a a, a what do you call it like a, a a a chart you can make a chart of your differences but that's your differences begin and end on paper because the human experience is such that um, there's so much more to relate to. And I think empathy allows us to uh, forgive our differences and actually 
um, see, see eye to eye uh, in matters of the heart uh, a lot more than we think. I think you hit on something that's so unbelievably profound and, and that's identity and the idea that while we grow up in different environments and different places in the world and we go through different experiences, our emotions and our feelings don't change in the sense where we feel happiness, we feel sadness, we feel everything. And that's where we can, you know, you can actually really relate to someone if you strip away all the noise that goes into it and, and strip away if that just because someone grew up a certain way doesn't mean that you can't understand them. And I, and I wonder why we've grown as a society to the point where it seems like we don't want anyone to understand us, that we don't want people to, that we're afraid that if people can actually understand our pain, that it would lessen it and take away from it. And I think the difference isn't it's something that I really believe in is that it actually is a way for us to connect in a better way. It strips away all the bullshit, all the noise and says, I'm a human being and I've experienced this. You're a human being and you, and you've also experienced something that we can relate to. And that is where connection can get created as opposed to blocking it away and saying, I don't, I can't understand you. So whatever you say is automatically valid. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, it's a little bit sad because I think uh, there are, there are groups of people in our generation that are working actively working very hard to heal um certain suffering and to to close you know to to bring people together and um try to help people and for some reason within that attempt there's actually a lot of backfiring and there's a lot of dividing and it's very very confusing and very difficult when you have someone and if you ask them like if you're alone in a room with them you go hey what do you want what is it that you want what are you trying to do and they say i want people to like uh, live a happy fair life and i want um you know i want people who are maybe going through more have a more difficult scenario to like do better and have more opportunity and then you actually uh, maybe look at the data of what some of their actions might be achieving and sometimes it's the opposite so it's a very very strange time we live in and the attempt uh to unify human beings is a very very difficult one because it's a very, very individual process. Like the act of unity is one-on-one, -on -one, but when we try to do it as a society, it, it kind of gets a little bit um, confusing. And, and that's why I think there's so much division in culture today. And it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little bit sad, you know, it's like almost feels like a wasted opportunity, but I, I think ultimately, it, you know, the good will, the good will win and, you know, it'll be good. Yeah, I know. I think I think you're hitting on something that's so important. It's frustrating to see to see all the noise and all the division and and what seems like people who are who feel like they're so far apart. And I I have a sneaking suspicion that we're a lot closer than we think we are in a lot of ways. I think people are willing to have conversations. They've just forgotten that that's an option too, and that we kind of dehumanize each other. And it's a little bit of what I believe is we don't want people to understand us and and the things that we go through because if they can under, if we're afraid that if they can understand us and then it kind of they we feel like it'll take away part of us it's like sometimes you just want to you'll say something like oh something x happened to me or y happened to me and nobody can understand me well i think the investigation needs to be done on why we feel that way why we're afraid to to be individuals and you spoke you know when you were speaking earlier you spoke about identity and individualism and i'm curious to hear more about how that's played a role in your life 
Yeah, be, being an individual um, to an extent is uh, it, it can be exhausting, and then relating to people as individuals is 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 also exhausting because you're really in the moment. So when you're relating to someone as an individual, not as like you know their age or their gender or their ethnicity and all that, when you just like cut all that away and relate to the individual, it it takes a lot more energy and you have to really be present and it's difficult. So I, I understand why people try to avoid it. Um, as far as like my identity and individuality, like I, 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 I resorted um, uh, to, to uh, a, a deep sense of independence um, as I started getting older. Um, perhaps in the beginning, it was just like a, a form of survival. Like the only way I could survive is to, be uh learn how to be alone and be happy alone um but an identity you know is something that i think it it can be kind of silly and fun you know if you uh if you're not afraid to like you know be who you are for better or worse and um and and, you know people talk about self-love that's still something i'm trying to figure out but i think if you could have a certain amount of self-love um it's kind of fun and like you know as a child i would try on these different identities so ultimately when i arrived at uh myself um it felt somewhat liberating you know do you no longer feel lonely anymore i feel um i do feel lonely sometimes you know for sure um and sometimes i'm alone and i don't feel that and that's a really nice feeling you know the the sort of being alone but not lonely um but i certainly feel lonely sometimes for sure but i also understand that that's like a glitch almost in the human experience a sense of loneliness you know you're fooling yourself into thinking um that you're alone um and, and sometimes it's so clear man like the other day this is pretty funny but um i was talking to a friend of mine who has um we were talking before about suffering um, but this friend of mine, he's older and he's got all kinds of uh, illnesses and predicaments like like beyond, you know, a- anything I-, I can imagine. And he just ran into like another like health issue. And he was kind of like uh, he's saying he's like, you know, I just he's being sarcastic and just going like, yeah, I'll, I'll, of course, I just needed one more thing to go wrong, you know, with with my body. And, you know, we were chuckling and and talking about it and i was just trying to listen and you know uh, be there for him and then later on in that day like i blew out a tire and then an hour after that like i got a a speed ticket it wasn't a speeding ticket it was like my uh my inspection was off so the sticker was the wrong color so got a ticket and you know i was pretty like bummed out about it because it just felt like a one-two blow uh whatever the phrase is and and then I was just like trying to call myself out like, dude, you just spoke to, you know, so and so and he's dealing with like real issues and you're going to be bummed about like a, a, a flat tire and a speeding ticket or whatever. Like, come on, man. Um, and, and I knew that intellectually and I was like telling myself that, but I couldn't shake the feeling of like, um, you know, feeling really upset about what had happened to me. You know, I couldn't shake the illusion of being completely alone in that moment so i would say that's the kind of loneliness that that is so false um but for some reason um you know still comes it's a very human moment to have where 
I mean, I think everybody's been in a situation where they've spoken to somebody who's, you know, my, it's a personal motto of mine, but how I deal with some stuff. And I don't think it's actually the healthiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but it's somebody always has it worse than you do. Right. Somebody in my, like somebody in the world has it worse than I do. So, but does that mean you're not allowed to be upset or to feel, you know, anger in a moment like that? Like where you loot, where you, you right, your tire, you get a flat tire and then you get a ticket. You're, it's okay to be upset. Right. And it doesn't, somebody else's suffering or has it worse doesn't have to take away from your own. Like it is human and normal to feel that way in the moment. Completely. Um, but, you know, yeah, there's just tif- different parts of our brain at work. And, and part of your brain is like, hey, people have it worse. You know, uh, this doesn't even really matter. Like, you're OK. You're safe. You're comfortable. You're fine. Like, um, you know, lucky for me, I have enough money to pay this stupid ticket and like fix the tire. So but yeah, I mean, but then there's another part of your brain that is just like, ah, you know, how dare they? Uh, take my money how dare there be a nail you know right um right the world's yeah, out to get the world's out to get you and yeah man of course it's this, so this happened this only happens to me and all that stuff yeah it, it is so funny because you're just like come on man don't fall for it don't fall for it and then you do you know or you don't i mean I, i'm sure there's people that are a lot more like uh healthy than me that are really are kind of zen and don't fall for that stuff like they get a ticket they get then a half hour later they get a flat tire and they're just like well, it's all good. You know, I'm fine. But uh, I'd love to be that person one day. But I'm, I'm yeah, not there yet. I think that's a good, might be a great goal to, good goal to achieve to. But I, yeah, I, I think, I think what you're saying is very profound. I just think it's very human to, to get upset. And I think it's okay to, I don't think the goal is to, I, I don't think the goal is to ever stop being upset. At, uh-huh. at little things like that. I think the goal is, and, and I think what the enlightened, what I vision the enlightened people do and it's from conversations, books, podcasts, things that I've listened to, it's that it happens to them. They understand it in the moment. They might get angry and then they let it go. Right. Oh. Letting, processing your, it's, I think it relates to like all the other emotions that we go through. It's process, let it run through you, work it, work through it, and then learn to let it go. And learning to let go is I think by far the one of the hardest parts of the human experience you know things stick with us they they last forever there's the there's the stuff that we know that sticks with us and there's things that work so deep down in our subconscious and deep just deep down in our soul that that can linger and last for years and years to come unless you you don't even know that they're there and affecting you in so many ways and when you start to understand that and understand it from a grand scheme of things and why you are the way you are and then i think it allows you to have the awareness to pay attention and once you start paying attention you start to notice things and then you can actually you know start to do work on it wow that's fascinating because i really appreciate that image of let of sort of uh being let's say a coward and letting that scenario get you upset but then having the wisdom to let it go because i think perhaps my image of like a great person is someone who doesn't let it affect them at all and I think that's false or just ridiculous and not really um, realistic. So that, that's fascinating, David. Yeah, I don't know. It always one of my favorite things is the uh, serenity prayer. It's something that you know people. Oh, have. is that um? Is that AA? Yeah, I, I, I it, it gets the label for AA, but I think it's completely. I don't understand fully why it became AA. I think it's a great one for life. You know, it's learn to accept the things that you can't change, courage to change the things that you can, and the wisdom to know the difference. 
And that yeah. I think lies in where where that is. It's understanding that that nail in that road that got, caused you to to get a flat tire wasn't in your control. And mm-hmm. and get and learning to process that and why it happened and understanding that it isn't your fault and there's you know, you can't be perfect will allow you to have the wisdom to let that anger or whatever those emotions go. But first allowing yourself to feel them is also part of that process. Wow. Yeah. I think. I don't know. I'm not, I'm no expert at, at anything. It's just my twenty six years on this earth of dealing with life has led me to that belief. Yeah. I, I think that's right on. <laughs> And you, you know, you mentioned something early on, and I know you, you're a musician, and you mentioned that you used to, you know, when you were lying about creating these false backstories for yourself, you used instruments. When did you start getting into music, and how did that go? Um. Well, when I was nine years old, uh, again, my old man, we were on our way to Matt Hofer's lumber yard to pick up some lumber at the sawmill, and he uh revealed a secret stash of bob dylan cds in his glove compartment uh in his pickup truck and the way he showed me it felt very special like hey i'm showing you something that i don't show anybody and this is my sort of my little private thing and he put in the cd and i was like oh man this guy's got a terrible voice (laughs) like god that's awful um but by the time we got to the sawmill um something about dylan and his spirit like sort of started seeping in and the the good thing was like i had no concept of uh first of all i didn't know any secular music um and i also had no concept of what like a rock star was or what a legend is or like the fact that dylan is this world-renowned uh you know one of the the great songwriters of all time and this incredible poet I knew nothing. To me, he was just a guy who my dad liked and listened to. And there's this song called The Ballad of Hollis Brown. And it starts off with this very eerie old blues riff um, that Dylan probably stole from some old, you know, blues players and stole it from someone else and took it from someone else back in the day when music didn't belong to anyone. And the riff, the guitar riff, just like it, it, it made it just jumped out at me and it it got stuck in my head and something about it felt like, you know, this is the sound of mother, mother earth. I mean, this is the sound of existence. And then the story tells this, um, the, the lyric tells a story of a, uh, a dust bowl farmer who'd lost all his crops and lo- in, 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 um, in the, uh, dust, um, what was it called? Um, uh, b- back in the day. And he lost everything and he had he had no money and no food to feed his family. And so he goes out and spends his last dollar on seven shotgun shells. And he goes and um, puts his whole family out of misery and then puts himself out of misery. And I mean, each each lyric is just like a blow to the head. Um, uh, Well, some literally, but (laughs) so. Somehow this song jumped out at me and I, because I think when you're nine years old, you start being aware of uh, that there's an end to life. You start becoming aware of, of these things and you become more aware of sadness, um, perhaps things that you've been, you know, because babies still feel emotions and whatnot. Babies get anxiety, but you start just being a little bit more aware of these things. And this song put everything into perspective and it wouldn't stop playing. And I'd just be walking around 
you know, um, back in my Hasidic life, going through the halls, you know, surrounded by Hasidic kids, everyone's like talking Yiddish. And I would just have this Dylan song playing in my head, you know, going, he spent his last dollar on seven shotgun shells. And it, it wouldn't leave me. And then slowly my dad showed me some other Dylan records. And slowly these songs just became like, um, they, they, they helped put my whole life into perspective or, or they not my life, but they just helped put life into perspective. And um, I really rejoiced in their acknowledgement um, and found myself really drawn to them. And, you know, very, very quickly got over Dylan's nasally voice and whatnot. So um, from then on, it was imprinted like, hey, music could do this for you. And I would my, my sister had a guitar. She was learning guitar then. And for, so I was like 10, 11 years old. I would when she wasn't home, I would steal her guitar and just try to figure out that that riff that old blues riff um from the dylan song and um and i just wanted to play guitar so bad and finally when i was 13 um i got some lessons um from from this guy um from kentucky and taught me a few chords and and uh, that was it and then i you know it transformed into like rock and roll guitar and got me through high school and uh, somewhere along the line, I started writing my own songs. And um, when the songs started getting, you know, better than the first 100 or 200 I wrote, which were all terrible, and I felt very ashamed about them. Uh, it, like better songs I felt started coming and songs I felt compelled to sing. And so I just sort of decided, OK, this is, you know, this is a this is a good way to go. This is this is you. So here I am. You are an interesting, interesting man. The, I, I can't get the uh, thought of a, a kid slash teen walking through the halls of a Hasidic community with Bob Dylan going on in their head. You must, if there's another one out there, I would love to, I'd love to hear about that because that's such a crazy mix of, of, of ideas going on. And it seems like you're kind of surrounded by like multiple religions, right? There's regular Judaism, there's the Hasidic Judaism, there's the religion of the farmland and I'm using religion as a scope of, of beliefs sure. that are all going on in your own head. And while you're trying to grow up an identity with nobody around you, other than your own family that can relate to, you're kind of living two lives. You go to the farm on the weekends, living with people who you're while you're sculpting your identity and then going to a Hasidic community where notoriously is known for people not having any individuality and, and keeping it all in. How did you process it all? How did you deal? What, what, were, what, were your, what, are your, what was your plan? What were your secrets? Like, they couldn't have all been great, could it? Oh, definitely not. I mean, you know, the cool thing is you never really what's you, you never really know what's going through someone's head. I mean, today I was driving and um, fun, funnily enough, I was near some Hasidic Jews and uh, there was this uh, Jeep Grand Cherokee in front of me with beautiful like old green Jeep from the 80s um, with Colorado plates. And I was like, huh, I wonder who's in there. <laughs> and it was like two Hasidic people. So and that made the image more confused. Like, are they from Colorado? Like, I don't think so. Like, they don't look like they're from Colorado. Um, yeah, life is confusing and you never really know what's what's going through anybody's head. Um, but as for me, like I I found refuge in my imagination. So when life was a little bit too difficult for a 10 year old to handle, um, I would retreat into my imagination and create um dreamlands 
Um, and sometimes I would draw and um, I'm a terrible drawer, but I, I figured out, I love this, um, this author, one of the only like secular non-Jewish authors that was allowed in the house was um, this book uh, by uh, James Harriet, who's a, he's, he was a veterinarian, excuse me, he was a veterinarian um, in like the Scottish hillside um, in the 1950s and 60s. And there's these beautiful illustrations of his stories. And it's just all about like a vet going from farm to farm, you know, dealing with whatever issues um, there are on all different farms. And the illustrations were these beautiful old world stone barns and these, um, you know, these these uh, border collies and Australian shepherd dogs that, you know, were, were sheep dogs and cow dogs and the imagery was just really beautiful. So I would draw it um, like all over all my books um, and just like draw like old stone barns. And I think I found a lot of refuge in what could be found refuge in the future. Um, and I found refuge that there's great beauty out there. You know, um, I found some of it in the backfields on my farm, in the forest, hiking, um, you know, through the woods and ending up at beaver ponds and little creeks and, catching frogs and um going fishing um it that like instilled like i could just go there in my mind so i i definitely got lost in in my imagination a lot um i imagine a lot of kids do i think kids are good at that yeah i think kids are good at that but i don't think you're you were any ordinary kid i think you were i don't know what other choice you had other than you clearly had a whole other part of you that and correct me if i'm wrong was being restricted and and I, please do correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm putting too much judgment on the city community. It's only from my knowledge of from sure. the perspective. Um, yeah, it, it gets intense. Yeah, it gets intense, and I, uh, I don't want to. I don't ever want to go on that railing about the people. It's not my place to. But I am curious to hear about how you did you when you got out of. I don't know when you. Was there a time where you got out of that that cocoon and and went in back into the modern world where you. Able, like what, what was the rest of your you know i i i'm curious yeah. to hear i get i don't know uh, escape might not be the r- word but i'm curious to hear what that was like for you getting out you know i definitely felt like an escape and an exodus i mean from as long as i can remember i i hated um the restrictive aspect to it and i i really didn't like the dynamic of control and of people claiming that they hold all the world's wisdom in their hands or in a certain book, and they would use that to sort of disregard your humanity. It was very clear to me as a kid, you know, because they'd be holding a stick and telling you that you're worthless unless, like, you did such and such or said this prayer or whatever. Um, you know, and, and it's not my place either. You know, it's really no one's place to talk about anyone, so therefore I guess it's everyone's place to talk about everyone. But I, I you know, there's great beauty in that community. There's, um, there's sacred things. There are things that I think everyone can learn from anywhere uh, they do some things really well but there's still a lot of that old world thinking and you know very profoundly restrictive and very not accepting and a, a, a like a, a grand disregarding of the individual um of an individual's own agency um you know a lot of uh you know this sort of like it's really a different version of you know, you were born in sin um, type thing. Um, right. But yeah, it was very difficult. And as a kid, 
it, thankfully it was very clear to me that this was not good. Like I, I was aware of how it made me feel. And I was like, this, this is bad, you know, and I want to get out and I dream about getting out in whatever form. Um, if I could, you know, go to the Scottish hillside and become like a, a farmer there, I would have, you know, um, or become a, a piano player that flies around on jets. I would have done that too. I just, I wanted anything that resembled uh, any form of agency over my own life, which again is really just a kid, you know, growing up. Cause as a kid, you, don't really have these skills to control your own life but we're programmed and wired to uh strive for that because you know that's the only way we can ever grow up and become independent individuals but uh, unfortunately i wanted that deeply which you know uh when you grow up you go man you know i should have enjoyed being a kid a little bit more you know um but yeah i, I you know it's still a process and and the the, the shedding of you know, certain restrictive um, beliefs or, or uh, belief systems is very, very important. Um, certainly was for me. And I imagine it is for a lot of other people. You know, that being said, there's a lot of great people in that community that I, I still know and I cheer on. And I think they do it in a very wholesome way. But there's a lot of the other stuff going on, too. Yeah, absolutely. There's it's never uh as ironic as this might sound, no pun intended, it's not as black and white as it may seem to, to everybody involved. Yeah. And that joke is because they only, they wear white shirts and they, they wear all black. So yeah, that's that joke. Right. If you're not, if you're not aware of Hasidic, uh, anyone's not hip to Hasidic fashion choices, it, uh, it begins with black and ends with white and that's about it. There's no color. Yeah, um, they wear black and white, the black to symbolize egg, being in exile and not being in, uh, you know, not having a messiah there, and then the flash of white to, um, I think, represent forgiveness or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but um, so you're at this point now, and there's obviously a chunk of your life that's in the middle. And I'm curious how that happened. You're you're starting to, where we left off was you're starting to learn how to play guitar. You're getting into music. Bob Dylan song is in your head, and you go through school and then you get you got to a point where you're able to break out and and start your journey on really figuring out outside of the restricted area yeah i felt like i was like sort of backing out of a room very very carefully and slowly uh, especially because when you're in any sort of cult or any sort of very very like rigorous and intense um belief system they there's a lot of propaganda that tells you that everything outside of it is wrong and cruel and mean and they sort of hijack these very very common human uh uh human traits like kindness and generosity and and love and they hijack in they say we are the only ones who are generous we are the only ones who are loving and, and kind um and that's actually what you see a lot in politics as well and and certainly every other religion and cult so I, I was very, very trepidatious of the outside world, but I had the good fortune and the luxury of, of having a bit of exposure to the outside world because of the farm and because of, I kind of, you know, I have that, that small foothold upstate. I knew people on the outside and I knew that they weren't what they were being made out to be. Um, and again, in this specific scenario, you know, you could sort of understand and forgive the fact that there's such a mistrust of everyone outside because this is a community that was primarily built on the backs of Holocaust survivors. And if anyone goes through uh, the living hell, that is the Holocaust. I mean, 
you can certainly forgive them tenfold for <laughs> maybe not trusting people. <laughs> like if you saw part of your family, you know, I, I mean, just unimaginable atrocities, you know, if you witness that and then you survive by some miracle, you know, you're the only one in your whole town or your whole block that survives, you're going to come out uh, very being a very insulated and guarded person. You're not going to trust. And that's something I always urge my my friends who are not Jewish or, um, you know, don't really understand them, but live live near, you know, say a city community. I kind of I just try to say like, hey, you know, there's no excuse for anyone to be like a douchebag or whatever. But, you know, if, if you're walking and maybe, maybe you get the sense that like there's like a Hasidic guy who, you know, isn't looking you in the eye and isn't really being too nice. Like, hey, here's probably why. Like right. that guy's dad or grandfather or grandmother like went through the worst living hell of all time. So and there's many, many other cultures, many other people in, that have experienced something uh, uh, in that vein. Right. It's so important. Um, it's so important to understand what's going on. And, and I think it's something we spoke about at the beginning of not, no, you don't ever know what's going on inside other people's heads and, and what they've been through in life. So putting yourself in their shoes and, you know, it's very easy to get upset. And I, I'm a modern Orthodox Jew and, and I have my own problems with religion. And, but I think everybody's got one. They just don't, not everyone calls it a religion, right? Yeah. Christians, oh, yeah. Like everyone's got their, everyone's got their beliefs. Everyone's got their beliefs. Yeah, politics every- has become very, very much a religion. Yeah, everyone's got one, and it's a system of beliefs, and it's predicated on on the idea that, and the ones, the com- the best way to kind of live and go through it is to listen and try and understand where they're coming from. It doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they say, but it creates a better society, in my opinion, where people can at least have an understanding of what's going on. And if that, you know, Hasidic man may not look you in, in the eye or dress his different way and isn't like that, there's probably a reason behind it instead of getting upset and angry. It's a lot easier to get upset and angry about it. And it's, I think, a big, what relates to something that we've spoken a lot about today um, is mental health, is, is how it affects our mental health. And I think we treat that very similarly with other people. When we, you know, you see someone going through tough times and when we go through tough times and, and there's a whole miscommunication with others from trying to help with other people or not knowing how to be and to be a friend when someone's going through it. I, th- I do believe there's a lot of similarities there. Yeah, I think it's our, that's so true. And, and our existence is such a miracle. Um, and so are our differences. But, you know, instead of being intimidated by people's differences, you go, hey, Hey, you're different than me. That's kind of cool, or that's interesting. That's beautiful. I, I cheer you on. You know, um, it's really nice to feel that way. It's very humbling, and you feel you feel less exhausted about yourself because we all have this like inner dialogue and chatter. But you can be in a tourist in someone else's world. You, um, it, it puts a bit of that to you know, it puts the volume down on that, and um, yeah, it's like there's parts of empathy that like you're exercising and then parts of empathy that just like come as a gift. And I think that's a bit more of like the gift type, but yeah, I feel like you asked a question before that completely got sidetracked. I'm sorry. Don't worry about it. At, at all. The conversation goes or goes. I'll, I'll, I'm curious to hear, you know, since you become an adult and you've grown into the world, you know, you not, you mentioned that you're a musician and, and you're playing music but what has it been like going, breaking free from other restraints while maintaining, figuring out your own identity in, in the real world? 
like did you go to college after you graduated did you go to like what what was life after breaking free from you know you're 18 now you have control of your life what did you do that's such a like that's such a good question because um yeah i think that's so insightful david because when i was like 16 17 uh, going on 18, I was like, I'm going to become a businessman and make a lot of money. So I went to business school for a few months and um, took a marketing course that I really liked because there's something about a purple cow. And I was like, I like cows. That's fun. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, I really hated it. And I remember there's this accountant uh, teaching an accounting course. And I, I mean, he looked just so miserable. Um, and then the idea of being a business person just stopped feeling like um, like me. And I was like, this doesn't feel like me. I don't want to do this. Um, and then pretty soon after a uh, song started coming. So I was like, okay, I think I need to uh, follow music, but I definitely dabbled in a bunch of colleges. Like I, I, um, I attended RCC, like community college, uh, Rockland County. Um, and that was fun. I did it mostly to like try to meet people and, um, and like, you know, my mom really wanted me to get a degree. She's like, well, you know, we're sort of ashamed of you because you haven't done all these other things, but like the last thing, like at least get a college degree. Then I could like sleep at night that you were six, you know, I did a good job as a parent. Like at least you have a college degree. Um, That's so strange because the ideas of thinking about kids who grow up on farm slash in a city communities, college isn't really in that, isn't always in that plan. No, it's not. But I think it's like, it became so clear that those were not, going to be options or whatever like definitely the i was not going to be like um a future hasidic rabbi so (laughs) i think you know her sort of she grew up in the 60s and it you know when she was a kid like the ultimate version of a successful parent was did did your kids go through college you know college so that was her next like thing like all right you got to go to college so i tried it out and it was kind of fun you know um met some like friends that i you know fell in love with or, or became friends with and uh, had a bit of a nice experience, but nothing ever stuck um, like, like songs did or nothing, nothing ever felt as important to me as songs. And I tried hard to not have that be important because it's a very, very difficult life. If you want to become a successful musician, it's like a very, you know, the odds are profoundly slim. You have to work very hard. You, it's sort of like getting a PhD in something. You have to go to, you have to work at it for like at least 10 years, you know, um, unless you're like, you know, sort of like going the pop star route, which that, that route is a lot quicker. But I knew the route that I wanted to go would take a, lo- a long time and be a lot of hard work. And I also didn't really feel that I was good enough to validate like what I was pursuing. So I was like, okay, in order to get good, I have to do this a lot. Like I have to play a million gigs and I would just like comb through the, classifieds looking for open mics and i was like i gotta play an open mic every night i just have to get good and only i'm gonna get good as if um if i do this a lot because all i had were songs my voice was quite terrible um and i didn't really have aspirations of being like a great singer because you know the first singer that ever moved me was bob dylan and you know a lot of people don't like his voice so to hell with that like i don't need to sing all pretty but i did want to give over my songs in a compelling manner um, and be a, a, a convincing um, translator uh, of these things. So, yeah, I knew it'd be very difficult, but, uh, you know, college just didn't stick. I mean, I would really, I once took this psych history course and the professor was like really charismatic and I really uh, enjoyed him. And 
and I, I was super involved in every single, single class, but then we get all this homework and I just couldn't stand doing it. So I didn't do any of the homework, but I was like the most present, um, what's what's that like classroom participation like i got an a plus in that but failed everything else so it's just so clear that <laughs> well, you showed up that? listen listen there's a there is a part of life that is you know they say you just got to show yeah. up i mean listen everything that you're saying also leads into that right you're you mentioned like um a few like maybe 20 30 minutes ago in the middle of our conversation that you were writing songs and you'd written 100 200 songs and they were all terrible but now it kind of shows that you kind of realize now that to get everyone who's become great at something has been bad at it at some point or wasn't it was never as good as they were after doing where you have to write to write a good song. You can't if you could just write a good song the first time you didn't wouldn't be there wouldn't be anything proprietary about it. Right? It wouldn't be that anyone could do it. But the fact you have to go through turmoil and, and to struggle. Right. And when you're writing the song, you think you're writing something good. And then you look after after and it's like just one of 100 or 200 that weren't very good. But to get to the part where you can now write quality songs or at least better songs. Yeah, there's definitely a divide between like um, jotting down all these like lyrics. And then it, it, there, there was this moment of like doing that for a couple of years and writing hundreds of, you know, I guess you can call them songs. But then, then I wrote a different song and it felt completely different. I, I didn't really understand why it was different, but I, I felt that this I should sing. Like it, I felt compelled to sing it. And um, that was like a very, very new feeling. And I, I knew it was different. I didn't know why, but I think everyone experiences that to an extent in different ways. Just like, all right, I'm going to try this, try that. But hopefully, but hopefully you, know, you reach something that, kind of sticks and maybe you don't really always understand why but you know i imagine people who like um you know people that's like like that a lot with people uh in relationships you know where you'll date some people that are maybe like awesome people and like really kind and fun and good looking and and but it just doesn't work you know the something the chemistry you know that the heavens don't align so or the stars stars don't align um and then you know, you just meet that person and hey, like this feels different. This feels right. Um, you know, uh, that that's one experience. You know, obviously there's there's uh, another form of experience where you, you don't really have that clarity. Um, and I think a lot of good things can come out of that, too. You know, I'm not saying you need or deserve any clarity in life, but it is a real treat when it does happen. And for me, that happened with songs. And it's like, OK, this feels special. Like I felt like I was like gifted. It was almost a relief of like, oh, all right, I'm not going to be a businessman. You know, it felt it felt like a relief, even though I knew it'd be like a, a long and difficult road ahead. It seems like music has been the constant in your life, no matter what turmoil is going on, no matter what what is going on. Bob Dylan's the, 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 the sound of Bob Dylan that got into your head at nine years old seems to have at least stayed and evolved yeah man he's gonna you know he's i'm sure he means exactly that for so many i mean that's why he's such a you know huge figure um but he, he'll he'll help me grow old you know like he's already helped me uh look into the next chapter of my life and if you study someone who uh achieved some form of greatness and i mean like a, a sacred form of greatness you know not just like you know a lot of money or whatever um you learn a lot and it it becomes uh, a guiding light and dylan actually did that for the whole music world when in 
1998, he put out a record called Time Out of Mind. And, you know, you could just imagine in 1998, like all these people who we consider legends now, like the Rolling Stones and Paul McCartney and um, that whole generation was starting to really get old. Um, and while the Rolling Stones were trying to like set, sound and look young, uh, Dylan sort of leaned into the old man, leaned into that character. And he led the way for the rest of his, his entire generation to grow old gracefully and to show the beauty in growing old, to show the beauty in age and time passing. And he did that with his book and he did that with that album. And then you see this whole trend of after that of other artists, like almost admitting like, oh, yes, I have grown old and it is not a, a, a tragedy. You know, there's beauty in it. So, yeah, Dylan helped me like grow up, get through the confusion of, of becoming aware. And then, you know, all throughout, um, you know, he's not magical. He's just like a guy who tried really hard and followed his gut and got a few songs as gifts from wherever songs come from. <laughs> wherever songs come from no listen i think listen, i personally don't know much of, I, I know who bob dylan is i know he means a lot to a lot of different people this has never been someone that i've i've ever really related to or listened much to it's not i never really you know jived with for me but i can see how much he's influenced you and i'm curious you know you men you, you mentioned a little uh beforehand some you mentioned you know despair and and forgiveness in life. And I'm curious to hear, you know, you're a guy who's lived a very interesting, who's gone through a very interesting life so far. And you have a lot of interesting life left to live. That's clearly going to be with growth, but there must've been tough times. I mean, clearly you've mentioned there've been tough times. So what if, what, what, I guess I'm curious to hear how that's affected your mental health, both while you're going through it and, and what's the state of it now? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it was so surprising when, um, I went to therapy and like a few years back, like four or five years ago. And I started recounting like the emotions I experienced as a kid, like the amount of anger and uh, uh, depression. And I was like, whoa, like, that's crazy. Because at, at the time, you're just you're a kid and you're like, well, I guess this is normal or you, you don't really have any perspective because you're in it. Um, but as a kid, I was extremely depressed um very much in pain very alone um and i held on to hope you know i i i i thankfully in this you know this is another gift where i always had a certain sense of hope and i was so stubborn about hope and i knew that hopefulness was the only thing that was going to save me it's like i i had a dream of uh first of all, survival and then escape and then redemption. And I just held that hope. But uh, yeah, I mean, certainly I was very depressed as a kid. Um, and then as I grew up, like that turned into uh, anxiety. Um, and then still like definitely, I definitely have depression. Um, thankfully, it's relatively mild. You know, I have friends that have it a lot harder um or suffer from different forms of depression um my depression is um uh it, it can certainly turn into uh like a very very quick um 
like it, it it releases in different ways but uh like whether it's anger um or just like a, a hopelessness um but the method that's always gotten me through is like it, you can believe in time and the time does heal and if you just stick it out like you're gonna be okay um and thankfully like as a kid i was able to prove that to myself so i was like okay I'm going to just stick this out and things will get better. And slowly they did either through, you know, just happenstance or I did something to change the situation. Um, but yeah, I, as an adult, like you're just, you know, you're trying to deal with uh, I, like, I'm, I tried EMDR for a bit in therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I'm not. What is EMDR? Therapy? EMDR is like, you go back to the root, of the trauma like the response the body's response and you sort of go in there and try to change the like actually actual bodily response to trauma so i know emdr has been very helpful to like a lot of um, sexual abuse survivors and stuff like that um i think it helped me it didn't like cure me um, but it definitely helped me um another thing that helped me was um uh, let's say, I mean, the, I, I, I'm in a very, very wonderful relationship with an incredible person. And like, that's helped me a lot. Just like being in a relationship with someone I can feel really comfortable with and trust. Um, that's not to say it's like not difficult to. Um, but yeah. And as a kid, I remember, uh, and this is actually one of the hardest things I, I deal with is like, I love people and I empathize with, with people's difficulties and tragedy but I'm not, I don't really have the bandwidth to take a lot of it on. So as a kid, I remember like there was like a friend who like his, his parents had divorced and he was like very angry and angsty and depressed. So he would tell me like all about it. And I would just sit there and listen for like an hour. Just He'd be talking and I'd be listening. And I remember feeling so exhausted afterwards and it was very confusing. So I'm like, well, I want to be there for him. Why am I exhausted? You know, and I still have that to an extent of like, well, I'd like to, be there for you but i can't um and unfortunately part of maturing is just like knowing your boundaries and knowing that but i used to think that being kind was like a decision it's like hey i can be endlessly kind there's like this image of you know not letting anything get to you and being just deeply generous with your attention and time and your love but um it's not really the case so that, that i'm trying to figure some of that stuff out but yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so vast, but yeah, you are, you are incredible, man. You are, the fact that you are so aware of what you've been through and have put in the work is so evident in the way you just spoke. I, I'm not, I can't remember the last time I was this moved in the way you're speaking about, you know, go, growing through it and getting over it. And, and when you said that you understand that you didn't have the bandwidth to, to deal with the other people thing, you know, I think a lot of people romanticize the ability to to always be able to be there for everyone all the time, no matter what. And instead of understanding, the, like you said, the mature thing is to understand what you can and can't do and that you do have limitations and that just trying to be everything for everyone, for people all the time is not a healthy relationship and not something that's good for you. And having that maturity is incredibly profound and, and, and so so impressive. Thank you. It, it, uh, you know, it's purely, um, survival, you know, so, so that, that's very generous of you to say, obviously. Um, um, but yeah, I'm just like, man, I, cause you feel guilty. Like I'm a terrible person. Like, I don't want to listen right. to you complain, you know? 
but then you go all right well <laughs> there's more at play um but yeah man like uh, emotions and, and feeling like I, I you ever wonder like what it's like to be like a squirrel i don't know who's just like on a tree and just like has a couple of goals in life like gotta get food for winter just gotta not get eaten um i think that's about it you know um I've I've personally never thought what it was like to be a squirrel. <laughs> well, that's probably smart of you because we we'll never know. Well, I wouldn't say it's smart. I think it's the base of my like different upbringing, right? You grew up in nature and observance. You had you have you had, had squirrels you know, in Englewood, man. I, there's squirrels there. I I'm not saying there weren't squirrels. I'm saying I had other distractions like television. Uh, yeah. And, well, you're lucky. And electronics. Killed to have a friend like you, um, who had television because I. Like, no one near me had a TV. And if there was, like, we weren't allowed to go to their house. And when I finally found it, like, saw a TV, I was like, this isn't all, this is it? Like, come on. I was like, this... I was expecting, like, way, it being way worse. <laughs> right, they tell you, right. No, with all the thing, I'm just saying, like, I never thought what it was like to be a squirrel. I mean, I had, I'm sure I had other thoughts that were more fitting for like just my situation i'm just i never really thought about what it was like to be a squirrel but i'll tell you as a kid growing up i thought i think like a lot of other people i thought it would be like if i was somebody else well that's it that's the same thing you know because we don't you know obviously you don't know what someone else is going through so you go i'd love to be that person because their life is perfect because i don't i'm not inside them yeah i mean that's it's actually one of the big benchmarks that i actually use for how i'm doing and feeling healthy i think it's a, a flashpoint or at least an inflection point in my life when i stopped wanting to be other people and understanding that even if i wanted to i couldn't i'll never be them so it's not worth feeling those emotions so letting the emotion of whatever jealousy or whatever it was of self-hatred whatever it was and learning to let that emotion go and then understand that i'm me and now what can i possibly do as me to get to what i want that's that that's is a great that's, that's a great me. like meter to have i think that's so smart i mean the other it's not necessarily smart or not smart it's like, <laughs> it works well, if you don't you know if you don't do it that the uh the other side isn't so good either like growing trying growing up thinking or living life as if you could be somebody else it's it's not a, in my opinion a healthy one it's not one that ends with a good result you know learning to gotta at least learn how to how to deal with yourself yeah it's like going to someone like hey you're amazingly optimistic it's like yeah well have you tried the alternative like it's not great <laughs> so as a uh, yeah i mean as a um as a as a recovering pessimist oh, um i'm trying i'm growing on working on being the optimist part and good I, on you man i think it was yeah you know it's you know i've lived life as a pessimist for a lot most of my life i think i'm gonna it hasn't really worked out so well so i figure i may as well try being the you know what's so fun try being the opposite what's so fun about you is that you're never gonna fully cure yourself of that pessimism like thank god for that because you ever meet someone who's just way too optimistic and you're like you are not aware of reality are you <laughs> so i i think whatever um, yeah, balance I think they're living you in. achieve is gonna be just you know or you're you are achieving is just glorious you know it's good stuff yeah, no, I appreciate. I appreciate. It. I, I, I'm, I'm on board with you, and I'm curious. I, I'm throwing, I'm throwing this out there. I'm curious what you've done. Like, do are there things that you do now to manage your anxiety? And, and you mentioned you still have depression. Are there things that you do that that you found that that help you or work through it? I try a lot of stuff. Um, I was doing yoga with my buddy Nina for a while. Um, like yoga is fun. I tried meditation. Nothing is quite stuck. But for me personally, like writing songs is very helpful. Singing songs is very helpful. 
Um, it's very like self-soothing. So like uh, just earlier today, I was, I was like, just um, I was singing. I sang uh, um, "Take This Waltz" by Leonard Cohen, and then "November Rain" by Guns N' Roses. Just on, on the guitar for fun, and that felt nice. Yeah. Um, excuse me. Um, and then like hiking. So, and I don't mean like crazy backpacking, although that's cool and fun. But to whatever extent, like going outside, taking a walk, maybe without the phone, um, really does wonders. And that's not to say that the depression or issues can't come with you, like into the woods. Of course they can, and they do very often. But I find that taking a walk um, around the block or, or, or actually getting out into the woods um, like at least 50% of the time is like really good and like does actually give, give me something. Um, so, so that's, that's been helpful. Um, I'm trying to get good at meditation or trying to like do it frankly. And it's, it's very difficult. Like just having that stuff stick, having those tools actually stick. Like I know I'll feel better with yoga or like going to the gym, but actually doing that has definitely been like super difficult. Um, Dude, I, it's it's so hard. Meditation is one of those things that I when I I mean when I've gotten a streak and, and have done them well, it's like it's awesome. Even if it's just five ten minutes, as long as twenty thirty different types of meditation. Yeah. But I'm on like a cold streak where I, the last two times I've tried to meditate, I've just bugged out and I've been like, I can't do this. <laughs> like being alone with my thoughts and you know, it's like, it, but it's 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 funny because we like you're saying like you know there are things that you know can work for you and that are helpful for you. But sometimes it's just, it can get so hard to, to get out of your own way and let yourself do them. Yeah. And it's, I have a hard time um, picking out which, which of those is just like, Hey, you're, it's a way of your, your mind or your body, or your heart telling you that this isn't for you. Like, Hey man, maybe yoga isn't for you. Or at what point is just like, you got to really figure out how to tough it out and keep doing it. And eventually it'll, it'll really stick. Um, cause I would love for both yoga and meditation to be part of my life. Like I, I know it's really helpful for a lot of people and, you know, after yoga, I'm like, Hey, this feels good. I just do feel like whatever percent better, even if it's 7%, like that's a really good thing. Um, but the only consistent thing I have right now that, that works is like, uh, reading, writing or, or hiking. Um, reading a great book is like incredible for me, but also it's similar where it doesn't always stick. And like, I'll have a book. And I'm like, I know if I read that, I'm going to feel better. Um, and I still just don't read it. I'll still like veg out on the phone and like, I don't know, research like 1940s hunting clothes for no reason or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's what we all do research 1940s hunting. Clothes, <laughs> so you're man, that stuff is cool. It's like old school, like thick wool, um, beautiful plaids. It's nice stuff. <laughs> yeah. Listen, every but the point my I'm I'm poking fun, but it my hope my point being is that everybody's got their thing. For you it's that. For other people it's things that we do. Big and I point. think a lot of us a lot of us, you know, people who are just people, right, struggling with our own mental health, you know, we're all on that journey just trying to figure out what works for us and, and I think that's the important part is finding your own balance of what of what works for you and when it works for you and understanding what doesn't and and struggling along the way. Yeah. And um, Leonard Cohen, the great songwriter and poet, uh, taught me, or I, I derived from his work, that uh, the people he looked up to were people who forgave 
humanity. Like they forgave people for being people. And this goes into like what we were talking about before, but I think ultimately part of, uh, and this goes for, for us, us, us Hebes a lot, us Jews, because we're very, very in the head, very analytical, very critical, a lot of uh, guilt and these, this high standard of you got to do this, you got to do it well. And that can bleed over into like things that you're trying to do to just help yourself. And I don't really know the line yet whatsoever, but I am flirting both with uh, great discipline and hard work and then forgiveness, forgiveness of not feeling great forgiveness of yourself for uh, not being the most productive or, or, or feeling depressed. Like if you can, it might be a version of letting go. I don't know, but if you can find a way to forgive your own depression or forgive yourself for feeling so terrible or for feeling debilitated um, or anxious or um, whatever it may be. uh, I think it can also maybe curb, uh, the intensity of those emotions by a little bit, potentially, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's an incredible idea and thought. And before we wrap up, I do just want to give you the time now to 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 um, tell us a little bit, a little bit about you know what you're currently up to with music and and where can we you know find you and listen to your music. So um, I got an album on Spotify. Uh, the album's called Apartment 16. Uh, it's just under my name, Shlomo Franklin. Um, yeah, I'm on like Instagram. It's just my name as well. And TikTok and uh, AOL and uh, all the stuff. Clubhouse now, which is hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you so much to Shlomo Franklin for coming onto the podcast. Guys, please check out Shlomo's music at shlomofranklin.com. His Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube pages are the same name, Shlomo Franklin. I'll put the links in the show notes below. If anybody out there is interested in coming onto the podcast, please reach out to me through don't worry about a podcast at gmail.com, Instagram, don't worry about a podcast, or my Facebook personal or podcast at don't worry about a podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'll see you next week.